On this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at if Amazon are going to take over the B2B selling marketplace. And we're going to be taking a look at Salesforce on its cloud 3.0 strategy and a lot, lot more. Victor Antonio, the other half of this week in sales, sales legend. How's it going, mate? It is going goodwill. Uh, so we've been out for the last two weeks. Uh, anything interesting you'd like to report during those two weeks? I have now taught Walter his best trick yet. So I get him to sit and then I go, bang, and he'll fall on his back and play dead. <laughs> so uh, his recall is terrible and he, all the important stuff is rubbish at, but he knows that one trick now. And that's been basically two weeks worth of work. So whether you call that productive or not, Victor, that's where we're at. How about you, mate? I'm going to call, I'm I'm call it productive. Uh, let me see. What have I been up to? I think I told you mentally I've been taking a break from creating content. Uh, that's one big one. Uh, been Oh, I got something for you. I made... My first Adirondack chair. Took a two-day workshop class, made an Adirondack chair. Are you familiar with what an Adirondack chair is? I know. It's almost like an inclined, uh, relaxing wooden chair. Has a certain angle to it. It was called an Adirondack chair. So it took take two days to build that thing. I learned quite a bit. My wood-making skills continue to improve, Will. Amazing. So you, you made it as opposed to assembled it, as in you chopped the wood, mm -hmm. measured length, screwed it together. Everything. So all you have is like slabs of lumber that they give you. Mm -hmm. So then they have all the machinery worked up and you kind of go through the, this is the second class I've taken. So I kind of knew how to use the machinery already, but it all comes down to how do you prep the wood? Yep. And then when you begin to assemble it, that's where it gets a little dicey because you've taken so much time to prep the wood that if you screw it up, you got to go back and redo a new piece of wood. So it really does teach you a lot about patience following directions and sequence. So it, it's a good exercise. So it came out really nice. I'll have to post a picture of it. You post a picture and we'll put it in the show notes for people who are interested because I'm interested to see it as well. Okay. What's, the, what's the saying? Uh, measure twice, cut once. Is that right? That's right. That's, and by the way, you, I can't tell you how many times I reminded myself of that in the workshop because I was like, you know how you want to get things done quickly? And I was like, no, 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 no. Measure twice, measure twice. And there were a couple of occasions that if I had not measured twice, I would have screwed it up. So for sure. Or something well, like, to that you're, axiom. You're preaching to uh, the choir here. My dad is a, by trade, a toolmaker. He ran an engineering business after that. So he just bought himself a lathe. So his garage is now fully kitted out for all kinds of woodworking and metalworking. Uh, so I'll probably get roped into that at some point, Victor. I'll be asking you, you both of you tips on how to build whatever we'll end up building. Oh, yeah. I have a lathe and I love my lathe. I mean, it's addictive. You'll love it. So anyway, let's <laughs> we, do this. We well, Chris, some sales news. <laughs> this is an article from Forbes. Now, we will gloss over some of this, but this is going to have a tremendous impact on sales, marketing, advertising. In the next few weeks, Victor, this will come up in regular shows because this is going to be massive across uh, Apple devices and now Google devices. And what we're talking about here, this is an article from Forbes entitled Advertisers. Now is the time to reconnect with customers through first-party data. I'll read a quote from the article itself. Reality is setting in for advertisers as we draw closer to a cookie-less world. With Google removing third-party third cookies even, and it's recent news that it doesn't intend to build alternatives for individual tracking. For anyone who isn't familiar, cookies are just simple text documents that live on your computer, and your browser will add data to a cookie document and just track you around the web. Sounds more weird than perhaps what it is. It's been there since the very beginning of the, the inception of the internet. But iOS, Apple, I've said that they're going to stop, or they're going to ask people to opt in to tracking across devices moving forward. Uh, the B 
beta of the new iOS software that as that's included uh, comes is out already. So the, the full full fat version of this should be out in the next few weeks. I think there's an Apple event next week, so maybe they'll announce some of this then. Google have fell in line with this with the Android uh, phones and operating system. So you're going to have to opt in if you want your data sharing uh, across different apps and different platforms, which of course nobody wants the data sharing around, so no one's going to opt into it. And now Google is saying here with Google Chrome, which is the most used web browser on the planet, they're doing away with cookies as well. Victor, is this am I am I over egging this? Is this big news or is this is this just will we find alternative solutions to get customer data in the future? I think yes and yes to both. One, it is big news because the question is how do you do it then? And then how do we adjust to it? You know they're going to find a way around this, right? I wanted to ask you a question. Well, sure. this is this is this driven by you know the the GDPR, what is it, the General Data Protection Regulations that you have like in Europe? Is that driven by this mostly? You think? So you can be GDPR or whatever the acronym is, uh, compliant with cookies. You just got to get people to opt into it, which every website you go on now, there's a big banner all over it that wrecks the user experience. So it's less driven by that. What it's driven by, but people aren't really discussing, understanding or talking about is the fact that Apple on their devices on iOS are still going to track everything that you do. All they're doing is stopping other parties with their apps or the Safari browser using their own track, using Apple's tracking data. So Apple's still going to have all this uh, data on, you know, the telemetry, whether you're running or walking, uh, when you charge your phone, so they know when you're in the house, when you connect to the Wi-Fi, uh, all this kind of stuff. They are now going to own all this, and essentially they're not going to share it with anyone else. So it's a selfish move on Apple's part, and there's uh, potential lawsuits in the in the works for all, for Facebook, for example. Uh, they put out a big uh, single-page ad or double page ad in the New York Times recently to talk about this and to publicize it because Facebook is just going to get wrecked by this because a lot of their tracking comes from mobile devices. So they're obviously opposed to it. Um, but yeah, the data is still going to be there. Apple are going to have it. And that's what it's driven by. Apple is saying, well, this is more secure for you because we are going to look after your data better than third parties can. But the reality is Apple just want all that data for, for, for themselves without having to share it with other people. I, w I wonder what's going to happen. I think it is going to be a marketing nightmare. Uh, but it's also going to be interesting how it impacts a lot of websites that make money off of this, you know, of, you know, being able to track, you know, from one device to another. So that's another because, I mean, advertising revenue is about to drop for some web pages, you know, especially those at high volume. This is really interesting. And, and this, this is really gonna, fascinating. We'll, we'll come on again. This will be multiple shows uh, as we move forward as this literally gets rolled out. We'll see it rolled out in real time. But this comes on to what the next topic here, do you like the transition there, Victor? When we talk about conversational intelligent platforms, um, whether it's intercom, whoever it is, that little uh, button in the bottom of the corner of the website that will pop up, drift.com, whatever it is, that will ask you questions with no cookies. It screws them as well because they don't know whether you're brand new to the page, whether you've been there 47 times, how many pages you've visited. They're going to have to create new technologies um, to replace what they're using currently with cookies while still being compliant with everything else that's going on in the world with uh, these tracking technologies being given a bad name and, and kind of moved away from by the kind of the big three, Facebook, Google, and, uh, and Apple. They're going to have to create brand new technologies to track users because this conversational intelligence, the whole point of it is I'm engaging as a salesperson with a buyer. I know that they've been to the pricing page 15 times this week. I know that they've been on the marketing page. I know they've watched the series of uh, pre-onboarding videos. I know that they're ready to buy before I chat with them and get them on the phone. Well, if you don't have any of that data, well, you just have a conversation without any intelligence at that point. So that's why 
I wanted to bring it up at the top of this episode because it does reflect on all kinds of new technologies that we see moving forward in the kind of sales, uh, conversational intelligence or the sales enablement space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm going, yeah, you know, because that's going to, it kind of goes against the, this whole movement towards understanding the customer journey and the buying experience, right? This is kind of anti that because you're removing that perspective. That's really interesting. It kind of, yeah, it's almost like, you know, it's going the other way, but they will come up with a way. I, I read something, uh, there's a company here called Terminus, and Terminus is already anticipating this or preparing for this, and they're gonna, they said they're going to start using IP, IP addresses at other, uh, maybe it is first-party data, to try to really track their customers. But to your point, how do you track somebody who's, if they came to your site, they're not part of your database yet, how do you track that? Yeah, well, this is going to get messy, isn't it? It's going to get messy, isn't it? For sure. And the problem, with the issue of an IP is if you're engaging with, uh, you know, you're doing account-based marketing or account-based selling, the IP comes from, there'll be one IP for the whole 300 people within one unit in a, at a specific location. I know I, at a, with a small business, we use VPNs um, to funnel traffic and to funnel our uh, content and data through one source here in the office. So I'm traveling all over the country, all over the world. I'm still connecting via a VPN so I can connect to and grab files from our servers here in the office. If I need to share anything, PDFs, documents, uh, kind of if I need to sign anything. Um, so IPs aren't as reliable as perhaps what they once were in the past. So yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure there'll be a, a mad rush to build technology to solve this problem. But the way Google, Apple are implementing the ability, the, the, the removing the ability to track things they're limiting the amount of technology that can be run because you can't just load an app on an, on an iPhone and do certain things to track. That's the whole point of the block that Apple's putting on all of this. They're, they are very literally trying to firewall off the data from other people getting access to it. I'm sure someone will come up with some ideas, but it's fascinating. I'm wondering if they're going to... I mean, if there's some other nefarious reasons, nefarious profitable reason for them doing so. In other words, hold the data captive, so to speak, maybe sell it on the back end somewhere. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, that's that's really it's an interesting question, isn't uh, it? Apple, when they frame this up, they are trying to protect customer data. Uh, we're giving you the option to opt in if you want to share it. They're trying to be the good guys, and that will sell iPhones. People will buy. I will buy an iPhone over a Google phone if Apple can say to me, "Your data is way more safe with this than this." You know, Chinese manufacturer Huawei. Who I've got a Huawei laptop in front of me here, but a Huawei phone that's got Google software on top of it that has other things implemented. If Apple say, "Well, we own the ecosystem, we own the hardware, we're now making our very own chips, so there's going to be less vulnerabilities on a silicone level within the device," that is going to be for the corporate world. You're just going to get an iPhone, like what BlackBerry right. used to be. Um, so maybe I, I like I like that perspective. That's a really good perspective. Well, that because people do. I think they're even though we have probably no reason to be concerned about data privacy. Let me be clear about what I mean by that is that nothing's happened to us so far. It's just a thought of something happening, right? And any company that comes along and, and addresses that fear, that imagined fear maybe, maybe real, but maybe imagined that, you know, somebody's going to grab your data, empty your bank account. I, I think it's a good sales approach. For sure. I think you're right. I like that. That's a good pitch. I wanted to mention, uh, so Chorus.ai, who we talk about uh, once in a while, just received an award. I just kind of want to highlight this, but then I want to ask you a question, Will. So Chorus.ai's conversational intelligence platform receives North America's Customer Value Leadership Award from Frost & Sullivan. So Chorus, you know, they recently released something called Momentum Insights. 
They say it's a first of its kind, you know, feature set or suite that enables users to monitor every interaction in the client relationship, understand the relationship that drives the revenue, forecast with confidence, pinpoint actionable opportunities, conduct smarter pipeline reviews. And I was the reason I highlighted this one, Will, because I, I, we've never had this discussion. Like companies like Course.ai, which may be right, it's a first of its kind, special voice of the customer algorithm. It's able to you know find these insights. How do you assess the power or accuracy of an algorithm? And should companies start valuing that as an asset? In other words, how do you know that that algorithm is better than this algorithm? It's almost like having two products. Is product A better than product B? How do companies, if you're buying a, a, a conversational intelligence platform, company like Course AI or Gong, whatever it may be, how do you assess the power and accuracy of an algorithm and how do you value it? Have you ever thought about that? Because that, it kind of hit me like, that's an interesting question. How do you do that? So you A-B test it versus a competitor. And I'll tell you my thoughts on why some of this perhaps can't literally be as accurate as what some of these companies make out, not calling out any particular company in a second. But you just A-B test it. Have one team use Gong, one team use Chorus, one team just use the brains and try and do some of this manually and see who performs better. That, that, is, that, is that not the scientific way to go about it? I, I, I just don't know. The... Because you'll, you'll, so for example, let's say I want to buy Chorus.ai, but I need to assess the the integrity and the validity and the value of that algorithm. And it just thought just hit me. How would I do that? So I can give it, I can find another algorithm I want to compare it to and do, as you say, a split test there. Mm -hmm. But I just don't know if that's enough. I'm wondering how do we test the robustness of an algorithm and its accuracy? And as you well, pointed well, what's, out- What's the goal, right? What, what's the goal of the algorithm? If the goal of the algorithm is to drive more revenue, then you just do a A-B test with a control, which is what you're doing right now, whether that's successful or not, against the uh, team, a sub-segment of the team that's using an algorithm to help guide them, give them insights, whatever it is. And if they outperform the individuals just working via their heads, um, then great. Revenues is the holy grail, right? If you can increase revenue by a top line revenue by 20% and the product only costs X amount, which is less than the revenue that's been generated, you've won. Perfect. But the problem is, a lot of these tools are, well, we'll save you time. It's going to be less fatiguing. It's going to be easier. It's a nice user interface. So those things are far, as you kind of alluded to here, far more difficult to test against because a lot of it is objective, a lot of it's subjective as opposed to objective. And that's when we're getting into interesting marketing as opposed to you know, the practical application of this. But if, we, if, we, if we're being very clear from the outset that the goal here is to generate revenue, you're a B test control is what we're doing right now, and we're we're comparing our team uh, as they are versus the split set of the team with the algorithm on top of it. Yeah, I, and by the way, I, I'm with you 100% on that. I'm just wondering is that if I, like for example, your house. Let's take your house for example. You have a house, and let's say you keep making repairs to your house, right? And then the valuation should go up to some extent, right? And so when I'm looking at these algorithms, I guess I just it just hit me. I don't want to stay on this point too long, but it just hit me is that. How do you assess, you keep investing in this algorithm, how does somebody assess it from the outside, how much value? Because all these companies, as you're pointing out also, are claiming all these, you know, unicorn status, right? We can spot the unicorn in the corral. And so it, it's, how do, you, how do you really measure that? And how do you know they're really telling you the truth is what I'm saying. You know, sure, we well, don't mean the city. If yeah. you, you try it and if they've bullshitted you, you sue them for whatever you've given them. <laughs> At some point, it's going to get to that. Yeah. At some point, 
Yeah. At some point, we've got to we've got to understand. You're the expert in this space. Tell me if I'm wrong. At some point, we've got to appreciate that a lot of AI isn't really AI. It's machine learning. We dump enough data in, we'll get some insights out of the back end of it. So when we look at it like that, as opposed to like iRobot or what's the guys Isaac Asimov's kind of short stories and, and 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 tales about AI, when we get rid of all that from the picture and we we look at it in the reality of, we can put loads of data in. We can suss out across our industry, multiple industries, that this, this, and this are going to work, and we should probably go after these customers first before these customers. Then that's a really useful tool, and you strip away all the other stuff from it, and you know that's that's what we get. So we're happy to pay a grand a month per how many seats uh, to get that data. It's when we add all the marketing bump on top, and of course, all these companies are fast-growing companies, so they must be doing something yeah. right because. Yeah. Uh, almost every, the proof's almost well, in the pudding because well, they've got every, so many new every, users all the time. They must be doing something right. Everybody's throwing money's, money at these companies. Mm. And I'm going, how do you evaluate it? You know what I mean? If well, I had invested- How would you how evaluate you, it? You've, you've been a sales leader in the past. What, right. What would you do? The thing is, I, I don't know, because if you think about this, uh, you know, as you pointed out, you know, a lot of this AI is really either just machine learning or just really some advanced predictive analytics, right? Or very specific AI, not general AI, just specific AI, very, you know, narrow niche. And so how would I test this out? Well, the, the aim of machine learning and this and these algorithms is all about prediction. What, for example, what deals will close? Who can I upsell? So forth. And so it would be interesting to try to run a sample set and say, okay, give me your predictions on these 10. And then now I'll take these 10 and I'll just watch them to see what happens. And then, you know, begin to see things. And then maybe even kind of do some hindsight and go back and look at some of the predictions that they did predict yeah. and go back and look at it and see what the accuracy rate. And it, again, it's just a fascinating question because how do you evaluate a software that evolves and especially begins to learn on its own? That was my only thing. Yeah. I just think it's fascinating. And I agree. And I'll, I'll loop him a brother here. So he's doing some cryptocurrency trading at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. So I, know, I understand a little bit about cryptocurrency, not as much as what he does. He's doing really well. He's making a ton of money. So much so that you're like, hmm, maybe I should be getting... And then you know, you get you, the main thing isn't the main thing anymore and you're, you're off doing things that you shouldn't be doing. So I've, I've held back from it. But I was really trying to drill into his head something the other day of this idea of the unknown unknowns. So when you're looking at cryptocurrency, there is trends, there's peaks and troughs. You know via previous data and previous history that it's very likely to do X, Y, Z. And if you buy here, sell here... You're going to make you know whatever small margins you do that often enough you can make decent money from it, but the unknown unknowns are what people typically don't consider, which is COVID, right? Which is a terrorist attack, which is the Federal Reserve saying something that was uh, they've come to their own conclusions on on whatever it is, and they've just wiped out one thing or another. There's there's political unrest. There's all kinds of unknown unknowns that we just don't know are coming and we couldn't predict that they're coming because they're just so random. And this is what wipes out people when they are investing and playing the stock market because they'll make money when there's a trend going up, even if there's peaks and troughs. But the unknown unknown comes. I mean, it's something that we don't know is coming and we don't know when it's coming and it wipes everyone back down to zero. So this is what I feel like is... I'd love to speak to someone about this. Um, I don't know if it's suit really any of our my podcast content because it'd be so random to talk about. It's almost philosophical. But when you look at AI in the sales space, sales enablement space, uh, conversational analysis space, um, kind of CRM, CRM space, you're looking at previous data. You don't know what the market's going to do. You don't know where the pivots are going to happen. And in my experience, that's where the biggest opportunities are to drive big deals that crush quotas. It's these trigger events 
and I feel like I don't feel like I know from personal experience finding those trigger events is what the real skill is especially when you're doing large deal size b2b sales trying to convert competitor accounts you've no idea that's that a good point someone's going to get mean, divorced they're going to change job and then they, yeah. they blocked you originally now you can get in there and sell them and predictive analytics is never going to tell you that kind of thing that's what is always going to separate the human side of selling versus data ai machine learning and that side of things no, you, you bring up a good point. You've actually brought up several good points, which is shocking to me right now. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> but but you're, but you're right, because if you think of, let's, you, you, when you use the word triggers, it's very key because let's say that I'm selling to a large B2B enterprise, right, company, and my machine learning is telling me all these wonderful things are going to happen if I do A, B, C, D. But over at the company who I'm trying to sell to, the VP gets fired. Or the CEO quits. The machine yep. can't predict that. That's the unknown, unknown, right? And so, to your, to your, to, to your, you know, example, you're absolutely right. You can't predict these things, so it has their limits. But anyway, I think we beat AI to death. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> well, beat AI, AI to death until it comes and beats us to death in the next decade. Victor <laughs> just comes along and just wipes us off the internet, and this show can't be published anywhere. And with that, and talking about publish, oh, that was almost a good transition. Talking about publishing content, Amazon. One of their big products is AWS or Amazon Web Services, um, and they sell a lot of B two B content through a lot of B two B. And by the way, let, wait, wait, let us pause here because you just said AWS and you said it like this big business part. And I want to, I want you to remember. I forgot who the the CEO was from AWS who you literally pissed all over him, and I defended him. And now and you you're can't like, even remember his name. Oh, Victor, Jazzy. come on, man. Jazz, something Jazzy. Something, <laughs> something I remember his name. Don't try to give it back to me. And you can't even remember the poor man's name. <laughs> I should remember this thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. So this is an article from their aptly named barons.com. I'm going to try and buy that domain off them at some point. Barons.com. Amazon could see big growth in B2B sales, analyst say. So this is quoting from the article. Post estimates. Well, I assume this is the post, uh, the, the news uh, kind of, uh, newspaper. The Post estimates that the global addressable market for business-to-business e-commerce is 5.7 trillion T trillion in 2025, and expects Amazon's share to be 1.5. That's AVT three billion, leaving substantial upside potential. What they're alluding to in the rest of this article is that Amazon are probably going to go after this B two B e commerce market. Now, it doesn't define what B two B e commerce is. Is it people buying office? pens, paper, whatever it is from Amazon.com, or is it a kind of other marketplaces and other kind of AWS and things like that, uh, business services? I don't know. doesn't really define it. But I thought those numbers were insane. And the fact that Amazon only has 1.5% of it when they dominate the consumer e-commerce market, that is a surprise to me. And I think clearly there's, there's massive room for growth to them in that space, Victor. It's coming. I mean, we well, it's been happening, right? And again, as we move further down the complexity chain, we'll start, you know, again, simple transaction. We know we buy offline, but all of a sudden, a lot of these things are becoming pluggable. I want to call them box to box, slam two boxes together. It works. At the other end of the expansion is the complex sale where you have to put things together. Like, let's say we had to put your whole studio together, Will. Uh, there's no way you're buying that off of Amazon. Do you know what I mean? You can buy the pieces, but I need somebody to help me put it together. But the more... One of the things I find fascinating is that if you look at pieces of technology, let's say your microphone will, you know, maybe in the past that microphone had to be one simple microphone, then you had to have an, another box that was an equalizer, another box was this, a mixer, another box was that. And then all of a sudden it's all with, been integrated. 
And the more we integrate, collapse these products into each other, the more commoditized they'll become. And that's where I think a lot of this business is going. But to me, the turning point was, I should say the turning point, it became very real for me when people started buying cars online. That was real to me. I don't, to me, that was my, my watershed moment because I said, if you're willing to lay down 20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars, sight unseen, you know, we've changed. Yep. And why can't there be a, whether it's a server, you know, 100 grand's worth of IT equipment, there's no reason why you need to go to Dell.com to buy that. You can mm -hmm. easily buy that from Amazon.com as long as you get the same support service and everything on the, on the back end that Dell offer from the directly. You could literally be buying hundreds of thousands, not millions of dollars of IT equipment from Amazon.com. I buy most of everything that we get in the studio, all the business stuff. I've got mm -hmm. an Amazon business account. We buy all this because it's all we get VAT receipts and stuff uh, more seamlessly through the business account. Mm -hmm. um, this ATEM Mini Extreme switcher, it was like 1,200 quid, bought that from Amazon.com. So we do most of our business-to-business -business purchases that aren't SaaS software products for Amazon already. So you only need them to put office furniture on there. Um, I don't know what else. Would, what, so this is what I want to ask you, Victor. What industries could be wiped out or what salespeople from specific industries could be wiped out if the products were on Amazon? What, 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 sales, what, could Amazon, what type of salespeople could Amazon replace? The well, I think the front facing front, you know, the, the customer facing people are gone. I mean, that, that's the obvious one. So all the AEs in the field, bye bye. Let's begin with you. SDRs, I think they're going to be safe because the people are still going to have questions. But but I think it's like what happened in the pandemic, right? A lot of the AEs were brought in. We realized we didn't need that many people to actually sell via phone, via computer. And so I think the frontline salespeople, the obvious ones that are going to be gone. I also think you might see a shrinking of even inside salespeople, but you bring up a good point. You said something earlier that was interesting is that if I buy something from Amazon, do I still get the same support as opposed to buying direct or do I not? I think that's an interesting question. What are your thoughts on that? So it depends on the product or service. So a lot of companies, Dell was a bad example on my half, uh, behalf mm -hmm. because they sell direct to B2B, the enterprise particularly, and they offer things that you can't get if you buy a Dell server. I'm, I'm looking at buying some service for storage at the moment. Uh, this is why it's top of mind. If you buy non-direct from Dell, you don't get the, like, because they're so expensive, they will literally come the same, a Dell engineer will come out the same day and solve the problem or replace the whole server for you. They literally have in leads all over the UK, stacks and stacks of spare parts, servers, equipment, and they, it's 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 not even a managed service. It's part of what the what you get in the purchase price. They'll come and fix it for the first year, just free of charge, no sending it off, no faffing around, because obviously uptime on a server is valuable and important to to the to the buyer. Now, what a company like Dell might do is say, hey, we'll sell it through Amazon because customers want to buy through Amazon, but you only get the service package if you buy it for us, through us directly. Now, a smaller company like Blackmagic, who make the cameras and um, some of the audio with studio gear that we've got here, maybe they go, we'd rather you buy it from Amazon via us setting up a, a store, dealing with stock, dealing with deliveries, because the Amazon, Amazon infrastructure is so tremendous, it's so incredible that we just ship stuff off with some barcodes on boxes. They unpack it, they stack it, they ship it, they deal with returns. They can perhaps even test products to make sure that they are uh, due or kind of they should be returned. They're within the kind of the, the realms of warranty before they get finally shipped back to Black Magic. 
Maybe a small company like that, even though it's still a huge company, but a small company might jump at the chance to have Amazon supply B2B products on their behalf because it just saved them the infrastructure cost, which uh, you know the economies of scale is not on their side when they're shipping fewer products versus what Dell are doing with like billions of dollars worth of uh, mm. products being shipped every day. So it, it massively depends, right? You if you yeah, want them, no, no. if you if you're yeah. the if you're the supplier and you want people to buy from Amazon. Give them bonuses from buying from Amazon. If you are the end supplier or the the supplier and you want people to come direct, but you want to support customers who want to buy from that platform, then offer them extra things uh, kind of away from the platform as well. And you're right. You know, uh, given Amazon's logistics, you know their their, their handling costs are probably so low yep. that a company couldn't compete with that. But again, Amazon is following what Alibaba has been doing for so long now. That's all they're doing. And so I I think it's great. I guess we now have our own behemoth our own leviathan that sells b2b i think that's a good thing that's a good word what does leviathan mean what does that mean leviathan the giant something big usually to describe uh, like a nation state or something it becomes so big it becomes a leviathan leviathan i like it well another leviathan here the global SaaS customer relationship management crm market it's going to grow to 44 billion dollars over the next kind of four or five years or so. It's going to grow. This is an article from or a, a study from tech, techavio.com. And we'll link to all of these posts and all the things that we're talking about in this episode over at thisweekinsales.com. The CRM market, Victor, is growing, according to this study, over at uh, techavio.com at 14.1% growth year on year. And 52% of that growth is coming from the North American market. What I wanted to ask you, Victor, is... Do we not already all have CRMs? Is it people <laughs> is it people with no CRMs buying CRMs or is it CRMs right. expanding what they can do and then charging us more for the privilege of using uh, them? I think that's it. I think it's the upsell and the cross sell. You know what I mean? Within these markets and all the added services. And so I, but but I want you to take this conversation. Not, I'm not surprised at the growth. It's always going to be there because I mean the growth in North America I can only imagine that they're probably coming up with ways to sell you on more data that you can use. You know what I mean? Because I think all the add-ons is where they make their money. But I wanted you to jump to the next article you highlighted because I think it's a really important transition. And that's that new tech startup. You want to talk about that one? Because I thought that was interesting. Tie them both together because I think they're really interesting. Okay. So CRM is growing billions of dollars a year in growth. And Touch is a startup. Uh, this is from Yorkpedia.com. It's a British tech startup. There's not really all that much information on the Touch, the company. It's kind of in, I guess, secretive mode where you've got to be invited to use it. But <laughs> from the article over to Yorkpedia.com, there was some really interesting data points, which clearly Victor has found interesting as well. So according to research from Freshworks, salespeople waste a combined 516 million hours, I assume, a year through clunky software forced upon them through buy management, <laughs> causing $8.3 billion in lost productivity in the US alone. So I can, I'll quote from here in a second uh, if we want to get further into this article. But Victor, why are we using crappy software in 2021? Well, see, this well, blows this, my this, mind. This, this, this is why I thought these two articles you found were very fascinating. Like one is saying it's growing, but the other one is saying, yeah, but they're shite. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? On the other side. And so, I mean, look at this. Wasted combined 516 million hours navigating through clunky software. I don't know how they calculated that, but good for them. Causing $8.3 billion in lost productivity just in the U.S. alone. That's a big number. And that whole foisted upon by management 
this gets back to the original hesitation of why people didn't like CRMs, right? Mm-hmm. It was always viewed as other like a KGB system for the, uh, the managers to monitor you, Big Brother, Orwellian stuff. Yeah. And the question is, is it becoming easier to use a CRM? That's a, that's a good question to ask people who are, you know, always, because they're always adding stuff. What well, was the first CRM you used, Victor? Like back in the day, what was the one where it was dropped in you and you were like, what the heck is this? Why can't I use your pen and paper? It was, I don't know if you remember ACT, A-C-T, ACT was a, it was a, it was a simple database and it was so cumbersome that you had to like, I mean, you had to spend time entering all the information in and your boss is on you about, hey, did you enter it into ACT? You know, and then you had to kind of log in, you know, the whole thing. Uh, so it wasn't that software as a service. This is before software as a service. Sure. You had to go buy the box, put the CD in and then load it up. And I remember I hated it. And but I also realized as a salesperson, having been one, that you can also kind of, you know, fudge a few things if you kind of want to make the reports look better, you know, things like that. Kind of give it a little more optimistic twist, if you know what I mean. And so I think this is where a lot of the angst with CRM systems come from, is that it's hard to get the information in. It's hard to remind yourself and slow down to get the information in. And then as a manager, you're thinking, is that information correct? And so I don't know what the answer is. Why haven't we solved this CRM problem at a big level? I, uh, just a small tangent. I'm, I'm working with a large IT company, large. And they got a, a sales force, I think about, they're like 10 to 15. And they've done well. If you took revenue per salesperson, no CRM. They're using like Excel spreadsheets still. And they're generating some massive revenues. And I'm like, okay, so... I mean, they convinced themselves they needed a CRM. It'll be interesting to see during this transition period if the CRM actually enhances their productivity over the spreadsheets. Yeah, so I've got two anecdotes here. One, the last Mm. company I worked for, medical advice company, family owned, uh, privately held, a multi-billion dollar company, uh, basically via the founder, created endoscopic keyhole surgery. They had no CRM. Literally, we'd be bouncing around spreadsheets. Even within individual sales teams, there was no there's no single uh, kind of holy grail uh, process to uh, document everything. Everyone had their own way of going about it. And that was clearly not a productive way to go about things. The company I worked for prior to that, when you, when you talk about CRMs being cumbersome, they had built their own CRM. This is a Japanese company and we were using the Japanese software translated into English. There was two, I guess, developers, sales, it wouldn't be called sales ops back then, but they'd probably be called sales, op, uh, sales ops right now that, would manage the whole process. And there <laughs> a number of times it scuppered me. I've never told this on the air before, I don't think. But the most embarrassing time it scuppered me was it was it was very tedious to change times and dates, whether that was by design or what. And so I said I was going to be in a hospital at eight o'clock. Um, it was about two hours drive from where I was. I said I was going to be there at eight o'clock. I was in traffic. It was a pain in the ass. I think I was late getting out of the house. And so I was I was late. So I pulled, literally pulled over because I knew you'd be monitored on a lot of this stuff. Um, so I pulled over to change the date, uh, change the time that I was going to be in the hospital to uh, retrospectively make it more accurate, right? And as I pulled over, I got a call just randomly from the managing director of the company. Now, this is a large company with a large base in the UK, but again, a Japanese company, um, uh, not massive, but pretty large company in Japan, a well-respected company, a company where you don't want the sale, you don't want the UK managing director calling you up on a Tuesday morning when you said you were going to be somewhere and you, you're not there because you're in the car. So I was like, right, do I need to really bullshit this dude now in that he's going to hear that I'm on the car phone? 
should I pretend that I'm in the changing room or something, just about to go into theatre and speak to a surgeon or speak to a customer? So I was like, mm, maybe I should. So I got the phone, put it by my head as opposed to being on the speakerphone in the car, which would be obvious that I was in the car. And he goes, hey, Ray, which is my first name. Um, uh, if people aren't familiar, my name's Raymond William Barron. He goes, Ray, where are you? I'm like, ah, ah, and then I bottled it. I'm just in the car on the way to XYZ Hospital. And he goes, oh, uh, Ray, I'm just on the train coming back from that hospital because you were supposed to be there an hour ago and you weren't there. And so I didn't want to wait around for you. And he'd come out to do an infield random visit, basically to spy on me. I don't know what he was playing at because it can't be a good use of the managing director's time to be out in the field randomly like that. Um, and so he was off the train all the way back. So the inability to change a data point in a CRM and I left the company relatively soon after the fact because the maybe that was like the the um, maybe that was a a warning sign, a, a shot across the bow kind of thing of maybe I need to look for a different job because it, it wasn't suited to me the, the micromanagement that they had over there. But the inability to use a CRM caused me just masses of embarrassment. With my sales manager was calling me then, the national sales manager was calling me. Why the heck is the why the heck is the MD visiting you and why aren't you there? So yeah, so I felt the pain of poor CRMs, Victor. I felt that pain. No, no, I've I felt it in, in many different ways. My, I think the hesitation with CRMs, we've talked about this in the past, is I don't think salespeople really believe sometimes. I don't want to generalize too much, but I think many salespeople don't believe that a CRM, aside from being a nice Rolodex, mm -hmm. for those who are not old school, it's how you keep track of names. What's a Rolodex? Right? Yeah, what's, ro what's a Rolodex? <laughs> you know what a Rolodex is, right? Uh, so Only from looking yeah. at like black and white pictures on, uh, like, on the movies. internet. Yeah, you know, it's just a, a, ro a rolly thing with a lot of business cards slapped on there. And But I, I think a lot of salespeople are having a hard time you know, seeing the value, but, but it's a catch-22. If you don't put the data in, you're not going to get the value out. And I think that's always the, and I think there's, there's got to be some, you know how they always have some law like Godwin's law, this law, that law, you know, Moore's law. There's got to be some law that says it isn't until you get your CRM loaded to X percent of your data that it begins to provide benefit. And maybe we need to come up with that. We'll call it uh, the Baron Antonio law <laughs> of CRMs or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, I'll and, let you continue. And we'll bring it back to this article from Yorkpedia here, where they're talking about this new startup touch. The point of the startup is to give a more seamless experience for salespeople to input data. The CEO of Touch, Seishin Parabai, is quoting here saying, no matter what they tell you, no matter what they tell you, Victor, the CRM wasn't built for the salesperson. The fact they sell directly to senior management means that they have to prioritize management features, which ends up in a slow and clunky product. This is now, again, the CEO of Touch saying, we've turned this on its head, pulling the salesperson back in control and focusing on perfecting only the tools they need to thrive. Now, of course, they're going to be selling Touch to senior management. And so a lot of what you said is, is going to undermine, I'm sure, I'm I'm making the assumption that some of what you just said will be undermined as the product goes to market, right? But it's a nice thing to uh, to assume. It's a nice thing to think about that they're making a product for salespeople. Um, mm. But yeah, salespeople don't have the well, budget, I, do they? I, well, I love this guy. We, we, got, I gotta, we gotta go through this again. I just want to state it again. It's such a beautiful line. No matter what they tell you, the CRM wasn't built for the salesperson. The fact that they sell directly to senior management means they have to prioritize management features over your stuff. In other words, it's not about you, salesperson. Mm -hmm. It's about what managers need. And he's calling him out. I like the fact that he's just calling it out. Yep. Now the question is, is he for real? Or is she for real? I have no idea. We'll, we'll find out when yeah. the product launches uh, more <laughs> widely and we'll, we'll keep track of it.
All right. Hey, well, I want to talk about Salesforce laying out its new cloud 3.0 strategy. This is an article written by Esther Shine and Cloud. So here's a series of features. Because I was like, cloud 3.0. By the way, had you heard cloud 3.0? Because I'd not heard of cloud 3.0. No. So I was like, well, what does that mean? So it's a series of new features. I'll go through them very quickly. Then I'd like to ask you a question. So a series of new features designed to support organizations of all sizes as they settle into a more permanent digital first work world, right? Also known as a DFWW. I just made that up with because I had nothing to do. Anyway, uh, they talk about a new architecture, architecture called Hyperforce, which enables all of its services to be deployed quickly in a public cloud. They acquired Slack, which we know brings people together in a seamless manner. Salesforce meetings, I'd love to see how that one works. The video meeting management system that sits on top of all the video calls. And also, they have something, have you ever heard of Pipeline Inspection? It's a data analytic tool that uses AI to tap into the deals that are most, I guess, most likely to succeed. And on top of that, the GDPR compliance. So all this, they're wrapping this all up and calling it, you know, Cloud 3.0. What does that mean to you, Will? I mean, I know you hadn't heard about it, but what do you think that means when you see this bundle of of, uh, features going into this? What it means to me is... I would rather we go back in time slightly, and I don't want all these features. I just want one product that does multiple things, but I don't have to deal with... There's a lot of legwork, which it took you three minutes to go through all the bullet points there, Victor. I don't want any of that. As a salesperson, I want to know who can I call. I want to know an accurate number and email address. I want to track the number of touches, the engagement points. Maybe I want to slightly automate sending emails or things like that if I can do it in a personalized manner. And then I would like to know based on history, all all, all this kind of like seamlessly integrated, based on history, I want to know, well, I should probably call that person today because I've got to call them last week. I don't really need much more than that. For And this is me selling very complex sales to the government or me right now selling somewhat complex advertising products to the enterprise. HubSpot, Salesforce included, uh, the, these large brands. I don't need... Am I, am I missing something here? But I don't need hyperbole. I don't need stuff. I just want simple... Uh, tools that help me have more conversations and not even more conversations, better conversations. Well, I, I'm going to get to what the, uh, the person from Touch said, it's not about you. It's about <laughs> yeah. management. Sure, sure. And, and, I, and I think the Salesforce 3.0 strategy is also not about the salesperson. And what I'm seeing is that they're collapsing a lot of the stuff. In our earlier conversation, we talked about uh, how, you know, they're selling, there's more market space in the CRM, right? It grew by 52%. Right. Well, the reason I think it grew by 52% is because of this. Sure. What they're doing is they're loading up different things that you can bolt on, whether it's Slack. Now we can have seamless conversations with uh, our compatriots, uh, Salesforce meetings and the sales pipeline inspection, which I guess is another new layer of inspecting pipelines. But it seems that that's where the business growth is. It's adding all these features. But to your point, am I really going to use all this stuff? You know what I mean? If I'm going to use Salesforce meetings, I guess I can force my customers to use it as well. But if I'm used to, you know, and there's all these things that they're throwing at us, but will we actually use them? I don't know. And I might have just been unfirst slightly to Salesforce here, having pondered on it for another 15 seconds. If I can do everything that we should describe of not have to log into Zoom, not have to log into a pipeline inspection tool, not have to open an alternative to Slack to talk to my internal team, if I can do all this within one dashboard or one kind of website, then 
there is value in bringing all this together. So I was slightly unfair in saying that there's lots of different stuff that I probably don't need. Well, if it's there and I don't need it and I can hide it within the dashboard so it's not taking up mental space or physical space on my screen, then it's fine. Um, and if Salesforce is bringing all this together under one platform, then that's probably a good thing. You know, the, the fact that you admit it publicly, that you jumped too quickly to a conclusion and then apologize for that, that says a lot about you, Will. I'm not sure if I apologize. I think I just changed tack <laughs> and corrected like, myself. <laughs> but no, I think that's what's actually happening. But I think that's where the, the added sales are coming from as the market continues to expand. Let's talk sales training. Can we get in this? Now, this book came out in 2019. Now, a little background here. When I, when I pull up a book or something from 2019, Will always gives me a side-eyed look like, why don't you get one in 2021? Because I haven't found a good one on, on storytelling. Hey, Victor, I will call you on that, mate. <laughs> I don't read any new books. Genuinely, all, almost all my library of books are like 10, 5 years old. I don't really buy anything that's like the, the hot trending book right now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've got this book. I've read it as well. Okay, what did you think of it? So let me give it the title. It's called Effective Data Storytelling, How to Drive Change with Data, Narrative, and Visuals by Brent Dykes. And he talks about, here's a quick two quick bullet points I pulled out from their description. Transforming data into visual communication is only part of the picture. It is equally important to engage your audience with a narrative, to tell them a story with the numbers. And what I love about the book, and you give me your, your, your perspective, is that, first of all, it's a great book. I mean, I, like I said, I'm going through my second pass on it because I think it's that good. What I love about it is that he's, he's like, you're right. You can present insight. If you remember reading the, the book, he said, you can present insight, but it doesn't mean you're going to change anybody's mind. It's how you frame that insight within a narrative or a story that really gets you to where you want to be. I, and my question to you, Will, aside from your feedback on the book is, you know, all this data is being thrown at us, right? Within the CRMs, we got all this data from our different customers and all this data we can use. You know, is this a new skill that we have to acquire? That was my big question for you. Yep. This is all I've been focused on for like a year, maybe even 18 months. Pre-pandemic, I was pondering all of this of how to storytell sales training uh, using the characters that we have over at sales.org and um, kind of using analogies, metaphors, that kind of thing. Because it's difficult to do. You do this naturally, uh, organically, because you are kind of unconsciously competent at it from all the speaking that you do. Uh, you come up on this show, you come up with anecdotes and metaphors all the time. But that as a skill to storytell, to make things visual. And this is why I'm just all in on the whiteboard. Again, following in some of your footsteps, Victor, you've done tons of whiteboard content on YouTube. Um, and the likes of Grant Cardone, people like that, who uh, seamlessly can go to a whiteboard and visually make something that's not that complicated, but boring, more interesting. Because you're watching the whiteboard, you're, you're seeing the the data develop as opposed to someone just giving you a number and then adding the the storytelling elements as i said with the characters over at salesman.org of sam walter and, and the team that has been all by I the way I, I i you won't toot your own horn as loud as i will for you so go to salesman.org look at what will's doing i think it's it's freaking creative what you're doing and i love the way you're using the whiteboard and the characters and the whole thing and i think uh this whole and i've told you this offline that that selling made simple is just a great brand for you to go forward with and i think it's going to help a lot of people sell more effectively so go to salesman.org will won't say it but i'll <laughs> say it forcefully go to salesman.org check out what he's doing I, I appreciate that victor um and yet the, the there's unlimited data and there's so much conflicting data that you get to the point where and you see this with us politics in particular you can choose what you want to believe. You look at it with health and broccoli is great for you, but broccoli is the worst thing for you. Have a vegan diet, but then you need uh, meat 
protein and then meat protein is going to kill you, but not if you only have two sausages rather than one sausage. There is unlimited data that it doesn't mean anything. It's irrelevant. It's only when we use our own cognitive biases and tie uh, stories to our own data, which then can lead it to missing. We can pass that on and misrepresent the data itself. But when you have someone, I'm not saying I'm particularly skilled at this yet. I hope to be in the future. But when you have someone who can storytell, who is skilled at it, it's very convincing. It's very persuasive. And if you can go into an executive board meeting, if you can go in there and you can say, we can do this for people like you, this is how we do it. And this is a story, you know, the hero's journey or whatever we want to, whatever story archetype that we want to use to get people from A to B. And at the end of it, we go, hey, did you follow us on that? Were you visualizing it? Is this real for you? Is that where you want to go? Is that you want, Am I correct here? And that's where you want to be in the future. That is so much more persuasive than saying, you know, the, the typical slideshow nonsense that most salespeople put forward in the boardroom. Yeah, I have a uh, coaching client. Uh, they sold a technology product that 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 it's, it's used in general practices. We went through their presentation, and they had all the data. The problem was, is I, I'm trying to keep up with the data, mm-hmm. but I but I'm I'm so busy trying to keep up, I can't absorb or understand the storyline. And one of the things I like about this book again, it's called Effective Data Storytelling by Brent Dykes. Is that I love his his, his model of evolution is this: look, there's raw information. He called it. Right. You take that, that. He says raw data. You turn it into information. Information's turned into insight. And this is where this book caught my attention. He goes, you can give somebody insight. It doesn't mean you're going to persuade them. Insight's meant to provoke some type of action. Right. That's the bridge. Insight provoke action. But then right between insight and action is where he laid storytelling in the middle. Mm-hmm. Unless you persuade them with a great, compelling story, they won't take action. And that to me was like an aha moment. He says, you're right. You could have all kinds of data. We see it. Gardner, da, 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 50% of that. Yeah, you know, Sullivan and Frost, this data. But it's, again, great insight. But how, tell me a story that makes me want to act on that insight. Not that, I think that book, this book really brings that out. Sure. Uh, story gives you meaning. It takes data, which and it's very useful for the likes of Gartner not to storytell around data because then it is objective and we can create our own stories around it and uh, make it more entertaining on the show and, and push it into people's heads when they don't realize that they're being trained. <laughs> a lot of the content we're doing is training salespeople, but we try and put this entertaining spin on it. But if you're, you know, if you're trying to be a research company or you know, trying to be, you are a leading research company, clear, unbiased, non-story-led data is very valuable. But if you're trying to persuade, that level, that layer of story gives things meaning. It allows you to push people, narratives and things in that direction. If you read... Um, uh, it's called Data Storage Googled up here. Uh, I think it's Nancy Duarte who wrote it. Similar kind of vein of book. No, I've, I think I read one of her other books. It was called Resonate mm-hmm. a while back, but I had not read that one. So I've not read that one. Resonate's great it? for the kind of hero's journey and different story arcs within uh, presentations, content. Data Story adds similar to what we're talking about here, how to do that with data, how to use different graphs and, and graphics and animations. Um, to, mm-hmm. to, and, and you know Dan Rome and his content, uh, Back of the yep. Napkin. So again... Uh, how to, how to, I read his, I, I got his book, How to Draw or something like that. How to draw or how to win with drawing. And I'm sitting there drawing stick figures, arrows, just trying to make my visuals. Uh, it didn't work so well for me. I think my visuals are <laughs> a little off, you know, but well, I try. The whole premise of the book is that anyone can do this. And I'm just like, yeah. I can't freaking do it. <laughs> I can't freaking do it. But, but, but I love the way he lays things out. So Back of the Napkin, I think this is called How to how to draw or how to win drawing or something like that. But it's a good, it's a good book, very visual. In fact, now that I think about it, is that where you got your ideas from for your character for the salesband.org? 
Because the, it, the character... So, uh, well, oh, the, 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 the drawing style. No. The drawing style. The drawing style... And we'll wrap up with this because I've got a hard stop in, in a minute. Okay. But the if you find this interesting, the drawing style came from the fact that I wanted to do all of the artwork myself. So I Googled and researched different uh, comic strips, different characters. And I really like... Um, Oh, what's his name? It does the Dilbert comics. Uh, yeah. Something Adams. Something Adams. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and his content's great. And he does real subtle, like, incredible storytelling across these really ridiculous comic strips that you read one and then you read one a month later and it'll call back to other things. And I was like, this is really interesting. This is almost like world building, like Game of Thrones-esque with these ridiculous characters. I was like, that is fascinating. I'm intri- I'm following this now. I'm reading it every day. And he's got, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people viewing this comic. So what a way, what a platform to share content, data, stories, narratives, ideas, whatever it is, and of course to sell shit ton of products. So I was researching it of how can I do this myself? So I started drawing these really simple stick characters and um, just copying this other, I can't remember the comic now, but this small comic, I was like, oh, I can do some of this. And it was terrible. It was shit. So then I got a uh, an illustrator to work on it and he refined the images and now we've got an incredible illustrator called Oscar who does all of the comics and illustrations for us now. Um, so I just send him the ideas, what I want to do, and he'll he'll draw them up for us. So the it was this uh, evolution from, I can own, I'm can i a pretty good drawer, but obviously I need to do it timely. I need to be able to write a blog post, illustrate it within a couple of days. I can't be spending weeks working on it like a professional can. Um, so it was a stick character that got went to then got developed by another illustrator and then now Oscar has worked them up and developed them and I think it really fits with this selling made simple style of it's a stick character but then I think some of the illustrations are incredible like the emotion that comes from them and it seems simple on the surface but there's lots of like subtlety to the the characters as well I bet I bet good job man good work great work Salesman.org, check it out. <laughs> I appreciate that. Victor, before we wrap up, mate, um, we will let's shout out Scott Ingram. So he wrote in, um, he's the host of the Sales Success Stories podcast, which you can find over at top1fm.com. Well, so we'll wrap up with this because we both host podcasts. I host multiple podcasts. Uh, so do yourself uh, with this and the the shows that you've got over it on your YouTube channel and everywhere else as well. So Scott writes, would love to hear your thoughts on the proliferation of sales podcasts. Just finished a massive update on my massive list of every sales podcast I could find. In 2017, Victor, there was 70 shows. Now there are 373, which doesn't include 180 additional shows that were once on the list, but are now just inactive. And you can find uh, this and all Scott's work over at top1fm.com. Does that surprise you, this growth in sales podcast, Victor? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, the proliferation of sales traders and sales speakers. I mean, when I joined, it, was that, it wasn't that many. Now everybody wants to be one. Uh, so this does not surprise me. I actually thought the number would have been bigger. I would like I to know that- how many of these podcasts get more than 100 downloads an episode. I think that would... I think that would put some of these numbers into more context. Not to toot my own horn and your horn uh, with the thousands and thousands of downloads that we get for our shows. Clearly, we've both been doing it for you know five, six years, whatever it is, for yourself even longer on, on YouTube especially. Uh, I'd be really interested to know out of the 373 shows that are out there, how many podcasts get more than 100 downloads? How many podcasts get more than 50 downloads? Because there's lots of brands that create content as well. And these are a lot of the ones that die because the employee that created the podcast, the face of it moves to another company. Uh, but yeah, I'd be really intrigued to see the numbers. Well, are, are you ready for this? I just I just did something because somebody posted uh, 
if you go to listen, I think it's called listenscore.com. And our friend Dale Prail said, you know, his podcast was in the top 10% globally. Well, I've just looked up yours and mine, and we're in the top. We're not, we didn't make the top 10%, but we did make the top 0.5%. <laughs> so, so we're way up there. Which, And if you look at the numbers, I don't know if you know what that means. Uh, here, I'll hit yours. That means, Will, based on metrics of over 2 million podcasts, we're both in the top 0.5%. It does not surprise yeah, me at all, Victor. <laughs> no, listen metric. My my listen metric is 52. Yours is 51, which I assume you're probably one better than me. That would make sense because you have an accent. That's an advantage. I'm, I'm uh, just on this myself now. This is uh, <laughs> select all images with fire hydrants. I'm getting blocked looking at my own podcast data by because they think yeah. I'm a robot. No, that's funny. But anyway, if you go to listennotes.com, you can actually see how podcast ranks. And so it's important. So by the way, back to your point, it doesn't surprise me, the proliferation of podcasts. Also, given the fact that equipment has become cheaper, yep. microphones and setting up has become much cheaper. So anybody can be an expert. I hate to say that. I hate that phrase, really, but you use that a lot. Is there that true, is. though? Can anybody be an expert? No, no, no. And I hate when people say that. So because let me ask it's you this, true. Just dead Dead straight on question. Before we started working together, and I've had you on my Uh show a bunch of times. Yep. um, And I'm starting to pivot some of our content in that I'm doing more teaching. I'm framing this up. I'm trying to do more teaching as opposed to just interviewing true experts in the space. Uh, Assuming you think I've got some expertise on some kind of scale right now, and I assume you do, otherwise you wouldn't be doing a show like this with me. At what point in our relationship would you have said, okay, this guy isn't just full of complete shit. Maybe he's got something to offer that he could teach. How long, when, was it last week? Was it a year ago? At what point? No, 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 no. I, I, I knew that before because, first of all, I've seen some of your podcasts way back when. Uh, and then I've seen some of your interviews. Uh, I think the first time you described, it could have been on the first podcast, maybe the first podcast we had, we had when you talked about your medical services device background, and you start getting into it, and you told a couple of stories. And I'm like, all right, he's carried the bag. You know what I mean? Like even the story today. You know, he's pulled over, he's late for a meeting. Manager calls him, where you at? You know that whole thing. That, those are real sales stories, right? And so I guess I got this a while back, actually. Because the reason I ask is, and I'm I'm dead yeah. open and honest about this. And sure. One of the issues I I one of the ways reason I started my podcast back in the day was because. Most sales trainers I was listening to were wearing, I've used this uh, metaphor before, an analogy before, they're all wearing weird suits with massive shoulder pads. They hadn't sold anything in 20 years and they were then lecturing me on, you should mirror the customer's body language and you should do this and this. And I'm like, you do that to a surgeon. They're going to be like, what are you doing, you freak? Get out of here. So one of the reasons I started the podcast, originally the sales podcast, was because I wanted to interview people who were domain experts and not necessarily sales experts and to pull all that data forward. I agree. I, we've talked about this. All, I, I don't really, and I'll state this out loud, I don't really like interviewing sales experts as much as I like interviewing people on the front lines taking the bullets, you know, because that's why I think I learn more. You know, it's, it's easy to stand back from the hill and look down and tell you what's happening. But those frontline salespeople give you some great insights, some little tricks here and there that I think are very valuable. So my question to you, Victor, is 
Mm. And I'm, I'm trying to frame this up as politely as we can. In that you, Do it, Matt. Just you, let it go. Let when it we fly, first man. met, maybe I'd recorded 200 episodes. I've been carried a quota for right. 10 years prior to that, uh, carrying the bag just to set things up. Out of the 370 podcasts that are out there, how many true sales experts are there in the sales podcast space? That, I, that I've come across. I should say that I've come across and that I respect yep. that type of thing. Yeah, because the respect piece is pretty uh, important. Less than 20. Easy. Less than 20. That's my number. Because a lot of them are just... they. T- Again, we've had this conversation is that they talk about things like, you know, hey, if you want to drink a glass of water, first you get a cup, then you go get water and you pour it in the cup. I'm like, well, thanks for the insight. Didn't know that. And so there's a lot of people who, who I don't know what it is. It seems like they read a book and they decide to do a podcast is what I'm saying. You know, and I hate people who live in the world of absolutes. You should do it this way. You should look that way. I'm like, no, you don't. You kind of adjust on the fly and see what's happening. You try to do your best to maneuver and make the sale. So and what would be your number? How many experts out there? Those 373, how many experts do you find? Honestly, a handful. And right. I, I would have to be fair and I would have to look at, I would, I would be happy to be convinced otherwise. So... Maybe there's 300 that say, hey, I've gone into this company, this company, this company, and increased revenue by this, this, and this, in which case I will eat my own words. But there's a lot of people talking a lot of shit about sales, um, and I hope that I'm not included in this. And I, I try not to be. I try and be uh, as data-driven as what I can. Um, and and you know, people like yourself have earned the right to say basically whatever you want because of your, your kind of legacy in this space, right? And, and the, the content you put out over the years. But there's so many, I just see so many podcasts where I look at it and I'll research it and I'll watch it because I'm interested. I want to see if I'm missing out on anything, if I need to improve my game. There's, there's a different way to go about things and it's just just crap, just nonsense. Yeah, yeah. I, I like when people ask me about uh, when, they, when they invite me to be on their podcast, and they say, can you send me a list of questions you want me to ask you? I'm like, no, I'm not going to send you a list of questions. Ask me anything you want. And I've had people say, can I, can I ask you anything? And I'm like, yes. I said, the harder, the better, the tougher, the better. Just go as hard as you want. And I think it kind of freaks them out a little bit. Like, oh, okay, I can go anywhere. And, but people who ask me for questions, I'm going, really? And I've had people who I've invited on my podcast who send me a list of questions. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go through these. But we're not going to be on these very long, so just be ready. And it's like they've, I've, if you really listen to some of my podcasts, Will, a lot of them have kind of choked after the first ten to fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's nothing there. So it yep. could be handful, but I'll, I'll say twenty or less. Sure, I would say even less than that. And something I'm experimenting with loads now, and I'm talking about this very thing. This is why I'm interested. I want to get your kind of expert opinion on it, Victor. I think live chats might be the future of some of this because if you choke on a live chat, you look like a dick. So a lot of people who aren't able to uh, walk the walk, talk the talk, they won't do live content. That's been my experience so far in having kind of tried to arrange some of these live chats with people with large brands, uh, large audiences. They just don't want to do it because they're nervous that they're not going to be able to kind of do it. And doing a, a weekly live chat myself, I'm learning the limitations of what I can and can't talk about as well. I can talk about sales, business all day, but when things start to go into... Other adjacent areas, I kind of fumble a little bit and I have to call myself out live on the show and be like, hey, I should not be talking about mm. this. I should be going to off to do other things. So I think if you By, by the way, sorry, I was going to tell you this. The, the Sales After Dark program is all live. Yep. And so the question and answer session after the fact is live. You can't hide from mm-hmm. it. 
And I, to me, that's I, that's that's the most exciting part. Like, what questions are you going to ask me? And the only questions I don't like is some that are totally off tangent. You're talking about sales, and he wants to know how to cook cookies. <laughs> you know, something like that. You're like, come on, bring it back. But to your point is that very few people have the cojones, you know, to actually go live and then just take questions because you can see them for who they are. And I, I, to me, I live there. I love that. Yep. So if you're looking for sales training, there's Victor's product. We've got a product as well. Uh, I know you do like consulting other things as well, Victor, that I don't offer. But that ability to go live, that ability to answer questions on the fly, I think that is a true differentiator in the marketplace right now. And uh, yeah, that's what I'd be, that would be the advice I'd be looking for rather than listen to podcasts, rather than books are useful as well, but you can have ghostwriters, you can have other people help with books. If you want an individual to come in and help you, I'm a massively off topic and tangent here uh, as we wrap up this episode of This Week in Sales. I think live content could really be the differentiator. Anything else to add, Victor, before we wrap up, mate? Well, that is it. Uh, good seeing you again after a two-week break and uh, let's keep going. Amazing stuff. Well, that was Victor Antonio, sales legend. My name is Will Barron. I'm the founder of Salesman.org. And with that, we'll speak with you next week on This Week in Sales.